we have been subject to change rather than agents of change. My point has been always to couple science and innovation policy the same way to these public values. This is not, not untypical when it comes to um, Europe or to actually the global situation. We only start to change things when uh, we hit a disaster. So the, the, the question is then, how will these technologies be shaped? What, what form will they take? How can RRI actually ever address this, this, uh, this thing? And welcome to Future Up Close. Here we explore the topic of responsible innovation. Today we have Dr. Rene von Schoenberg, who is based in Brussels in Belgium. Rene is a philosopher and a STS scholar, that's a science, technology, and society scholar. He graduated as an agricultural scientist at Waffeninger University in the Netherlands and completed his second PhD specializing in philosophy at the Johann Wolfgang Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany. René joined the European Commission in 1998, where he is currently serving as a team leader for science policy, which oversees, for example, research and innovation, governance and ethics of emerging technologies, such as nanotechnology and ICT, and the promotion of international dialogue on ethically sensitive issues, including privacy and data protection. He is a guest professor at the Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany, and is also the author and editor of 15 books with the latest called The International Handbook on Responsible Innovation, a global resource. So for the next hour or so, uh, we will be discussing key trends regarding innovation policies worldwide and what these changes may mean for business leaders, entrepreneurs and investors to help you make more informed innovation decisions. So, welcome to the show, Rene. I'm pleased to be here. You've been involved in responsible innovation from the very beginning. In fact, a number of your colleagues have said that you've made significant contribution to the responsible innovation movement. What got you interested in responsible innovation in the first place? This goes back, uh, I think, uh, till my time as a student. Uh, I was always interested in, uh, in the science-society relationship especially how society could help to shape uh, technological uh, change. I was, uh, like many other scholars in the STS field, always concerned about uh, the risk of new uh, technologies. Uh, but this slightly, this, this then moved on to a whole a bunch of uh, topics. One of them is uh, uh, what I call um, decision-making under scientific uncertainty. So how do you make as a, in, as a society reasonable decisions against the background of scientific controversies and societal controversies? This is uh, up till today an, an important topic uh, if you look to climate change or all the big ecological issues. And then uh, secondly, I want to see how um, we can drive innovations towards social desirable ends. And then uh, this, this, this short sentence, driving innovation towards social desirable ends, raises enormous uh, amount of questions. First, of course, uh, how can you define social desirable ends? Uh, who decides on them? How innovation can be managed uh, towards these social desirable ends? And the problems of relationships between science and innovation, science and uh, the market, uh, so the whole um, institutional arrangements, which is now my key interest uh, on how to change the conditions under which science is performed, as well as the public governance of the economy, we have to undergo a major change in order to help achieve this key sentence, you know, how to drive innovations towards social desirable ends. And of course, it's, I mean, I, I think up till today, it remains striking that um, you know, when it comes to societal change, most changes recently have been induced by new technologies. We have been subject to change rather than agents of change. 
as 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 individuals as, as, as or and or as societies as well we have not called for the internet although we enjoyed it we did not call for genetically modified organisms we never demanded these things and yet they determine our lives uh, so it's an it's a it's an enormous challenge to say how can we have a more human-centered technology which is uh, designed and wanted by us by us all so what does responsible innovation symbolize for you then is it a more sense of empowerment for humans to drive their future yes exactly so it would be an uh, empowerment of citizens and societies to uh, first uh, help to shape these innovations and uh, to the extent possible determine their characteristics uh, of course this is a sort of uh, ideal uh, I'm, I'm, I'm of course aware that one will never ever achieve an um, a technology from which you completely determine uh, its characteristics uh, you know far ahead of time it, it requires monitoring of technologies it requires engagement and it is therefore also coupled to um, a democratization process which was this goes actually back to the 1960s we have established in um, western societies uh, democracies but democracy has not entered into the issue of technologies. I mean, we have only been addressing those things in terms of constraints. You know, what technologies are not allowed to do or what we should not allow on the markets, what I call an ethics of constraints. But we don't have a uh, constructive ethics, which in my terms uh, is translated in a collective co-responsibility for uh, the design of new innovations. Can you share with us what are the key initiatives you are currently working on to drive responsible innovation? Uh, the last uh, few years I've been working on in my capacity at the European Commission, trying to motivate and to engage stakeholders in a process to change the rewards and incentive system for researchers. So that means we currently have a research system, uh, like you also have very strongly in Australia, which pushes researchers to a productivity in terms of publishing as much as possible, and then preferably in high impact journals. This leads actually to a particular paradox. We can show that the more people actually publish, the less productive the system comes in, becomes in terms of addressing societal relevant uh, issues. And this is because journals, researchers preferably want to publish because they will get their prestige on that, select articles on, of course, uh, scientific interest, but not necessarily, but it helps to contribute to social desirable uh, ends. So we try to change this rewards and incentive system to a system where researchers are not rewarded only for the amount of publications they do, for example, or where they publish, but uh, whether they collaborate and whether they uh, share their data and knowledge uh, early on in order to address uh, societal challenges. And I think uh, COVID was actually a gift for our research, for, for this motive, because with COVID it became immediately clear that we would not never achieve a vaccine if scientists would not collaborate very early on forget about their publication, share their data immediately. And this is what happened uh, to a large extent, which contributed to the early availability of a vaccine. But of course, the question remains, for all these important global societal challenges, we have to rearrange our reward system globally, actually, for scientists and motivate them and reward them for collaborating early on, as we did with COVID. This is only one element, of course, for RRI. You can say it's a sort of precondition for achieving RRI. RRI is much broader than this, this element of institutionalizing open science uh, within the research system. But this is already a very big task. And um, stakeholders are, of course, at least reluctantly to move in this direction. 
but we have had some major initiatives uh, recently. I can quote, for example, um, the Netherlands or, or also in Finland, where they changed the system uh, already to an extent that they abandoned uh, the general impact factor, for example, as a reward criterion. That in fact, in Netherlands, abandoned all forms of quantitative metrics as a way of judging scientific achievements within research units. Open science and open collaboration has become an element for rewarding them as well. At the European level, we try now to get, uh, also in other countries, changes, maybe not in an identical way as uh, in the Netherlands. Every country may have its own uh, way of doing these things but that there will be a common ground for changing the rewards and incentive system in such a way that research behavior becomes rewardable, not just uh, research outputs. And when it comes to research output, there's also a very much broader set of research outputs will become rewardable, not only publications, but for example, also open data sets or uh, software or cell lines, uh, you name it. Are all the tools required to make open science easier already available? Or could are there any extra additional help that would make open science or open collaboration easier? That's a good point, of course. You can say that uh, open science, in a sense, as I just mentioned it, so in terms of uh, open collaboration and early uh, knowledge and data sharing, um, that this uh, has been driven by bottom-up, also by digital means. Uh, we have now a lot of open or semi-open digital platforms in which uh, researchers can share our presentations or preprints or documents very early on. And this has, I think, since the beginning of the last decade, risk exponentially. This sharing has taken place, despite that that this sharing was not rewarded as such by the system. There is a growing sense in the scientific community and of course also motivated by scientists themselves in the sense that they want to have their uh, material uh, read, of course. If you write an article, you want to be read. And, and, uh, and interesting enough, if you publish on an open um, digital platform, there are more people who read your article than when you publish in Nature. <laughs> So, 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 so in that sense, uh, it's a, it's an incentive as well. This is a bottom-up reaction, uh, but uh, we found, let's say, around 2013-14, as a diagnosis that this bottom-up change, which is happening, needs uh, support from public governance. So, the core of responsive innovation is finding common values, and then a vision for the future and then directing our innovations towards even a direction, right? However, one of the consequences of globalization is that our values are changing, especially for younger generation. Some might even say that they, their values or they can relate to people who are in a different country more than say their family or their neighbor. So, my question then is, what does this mean for developing innovation policies? In particular, how do we ensure that the, the direction we give our innovations remain relevant for the local population whose values and interests are diversifying? Yes, this is an important question. So um, this, this raises actually a couple of issues. So, one issue you raised yourself, uh, which public values are so universal enough to carry, for instance, uh, global changes, and which are uh, predominantly on local levels and, um, and, and regional levels because of a huge variety in, in cultural uh, attitudes around the world. It's actually interesting to notice that in the European Union, for example, from also from an external uh, viewer from Australia, that we always argue enormously with each other among member states about almost anything. And uh, certainly if you would say, let's argue about values, then, then they would say, this is really not an issue for the European Union to tackle. This is something for uh, local and um, member state level. 
but uh, you will be surprised that we have established over decades of social involvement, so to speak, uh, a common set of shared public European values, which are very strongly shared, and which are unfortunately decoupled from science and technology and innovation policy. These values, they drive uh, a lot of public policies across different nations and cultures. When it comes, for instance, for environmental policy or even trade policy, uh, we share a lot of values would drive these policies, but not science and innovation. Science and innovation has always been seen as a goal in itself and uh, predominantly justified in macroeconomic terms, like any innovation is good because it uh, produces economic benefit for all. So my point has been always to couple science and innovation policy the same way to these public values, minimally in Europe, then of course, as with these other policies. And this would then subsequently mean that when it comes to implementation of particular technologies, and then the local uh, aspect comes in, because the situation in every country is not the same to the sustainable development goals equally also evolved over many decades of international dialogue and cooperation. We share that almost virtually every corner of earth that these issues are enormously important. We all agree that we want to, um, to achieve them. Uh, we all agree that they should be at the core of science and technology work. All these things we actually agree on, only we may disagree on how to achieve them and what it means locally. And this is where the translation comes in. This is also important for responsible research and innovation because first you have, of course, to establish that this innovation is based on these shared public values. But then subsequently, uh, what it means, what climate change means in, in Sri Lanka or means in the Netherlands is different two degrees Celsius temperature rise is maybe harmless for one part of the earth, but uh, a catastrophe somewhere else. I would say it's not a, then a difference of value, it's more an articulation on what it then means for your community to work on. And this then is of course part of the RRI process and this is why citizens' involvement and co-creation and co-design is enormously important for RRI because th this is the means to mediate pretty universal public values, translating them into um, local um, situations. But of course, the most important thing is that, that our policies should support these public values uh, in science and technology policy. And, and this has not been um, sufficient the case uh, in the last few years. So we see now at the European level uh, some changes towards that. Uh, we have established mechanisms for trying to achieve uh, major societal uh, objectives, what we now call mission-oriented research. And these missions are, are different than maybe research missions from the past, because these missions are targeted at social objectives and they are not aimed at increasing our technological capacity to the maximum or exploiting technologies to the maximum, but they are aimed at achieving uh, social ends, which is, of course, an RRI objective. What you said about prioritizing the social aspect of innovation, that seems to be quite opposite to the commercial players who are obviously much more focused on profiting the profits from innovation. How, how is that tension managed? Uh, I remember you did say that the goal is to develop a system where individual companies don't really have to think about whether they are doing responsible innovation because, they are, because the system's designed in a way that would encourage that anyway. But, well, yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, of course, if you are an um, if you are an individual company or an innovator, it's of course natural that uh, you look to opportunities, which uh, is of course profit uh, driven. Would also not change uh, when we have RRI institutionalized. But the difference is, of course, that the markets, the functioning of the markets, 
which is not the responsibility of these individual companies, but it's the responsibility of the states to manage these markets, have to be improved in terms of uh, addressing uh, market deficits. My biggest examples are always in the pharmaceutical or in agro-cultural areas, because these are areas which are dominated by a few big companies which have narrowed down the scope of innovations to a limited set of innovations, which will drive the profits, of course. But uh, unfortunately, this means the major challenges on Earth, be it from malaria, which is the disease which affects most people on Earth, or be it uh, even uh, antibiotics, which are increasingly become less ineffective, that these areas are not addressed uh, hardly at all by these big companies because they have no, no, no interest in it. And then again, with COVID, it's the same. They would not have invested in, uh, of they, they actually didn't, never would not even consider to invest in, in developing a vaccine. And up till now, they did not do that, actually, because they were subsidized to do it. <laughs> so, so you can see there's an enormous... Uh, market deficit in driving innovations towards evident uh, public challenges. So what, what we have to do about this, I think there are a, a couple of changes. The first thing is that public authorities uh, have retreated too much from the market, so they have left things too much to the market. It means that we have to uh, think of another public governance of the economy, which especially in the in, in the area of uh, sustainable development goals, where you have to make certain transitions towards uh, new um, new technologies, you know, let's take the Green Deal in, in Europe. Um, you, again, this can be addressed by the markets, but markets will only respond for, to that when the conditions are there. So on that front, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, I, I think there is a cre- increasing awareness that also um, a legal actions has to be taken uh, by the states uh, when you want to address, for example, climate uh, change. So these these things, so the whole public governance of the economy has to become a new uh, target for action. And there are some instruments in which we can achieve these, uh, these uh, things. So one instrument is uh, which is practiced to some extent, particular public-private uh, partnerships to, to focus on these uh, uh, market deficits, for example, in order to ensure that we do research uh, on malaria, for example, uh, that we uh, will work on those things. And of course, uh, again, uh, the backing up by the scientific system that these, uh, that these topics will be uh, rewardable for um, for for research, and then there is maybe a new dimension to it, that uh, that companies themselves, who of course uh, uh, normally see themselves as competitors, in some cases when the public authorities come in, can make them also work together. They not necessarily need always or only compete with each other, but also collaborate with each other, that they can share mm-hmm. resources and so on. But that means uh, you have as a public authority to task to enable uh, these processes. And that it makes also sense for these companies to do that. Although it may, it may be from a rational point of view, very logical to share resources when it comes to, for instance, uh, addressing COVID uh, among companies, but they will not do it if there is no incentive or there is no structure for uh, enabling them to do that. When you say incentives, can you give some examples? Well, the, the, I mean, institutional arrangements is one thing, So, but on the other thing is the development of innovative standards, for example, to which companies could comply with. Uh, this is now, we, we, we did some work at Europe uh, within some projects on, uh, on, on setting new standards. Um, one example I have in my handbook is on agricultural uh, is it on precision technology uh, in, in agriculture where you as a public authority can intervene in these technologies by uh, setting you know, important framework conditions, for example, whether uh, data which are collected by these precision technologies by farmers, that these data are owned by the farmers themselves, 
and not centralized by big companies, for example. If you allow sharing of data among farmers, for example, then they can work together. Then they would not need on, at that front to compete with each other. They can learn from each other, share data, sell their um, products, maybe uh, without using the retailers directly on the market to the customers online. But if you centralize it in uh, big companies like the, uh, the company there in the US, for example, who make tractors and uh, will probably have more data about the land of farmers and the farmers know themselves, then you can get an agricultural system which is very much global market driven and which will drive to uh, more commodity produce, uh, bigger uh, even larger agricultural farms than we already have now. And this can lead to a, a pufferization of uh, agricultural produce. Now, in the, so the, the design of such a system, so it's actually on a sort of system level where the public governance comes in. You have to look to the agricultural system and say, okay, uh, what do we want to get out of this system? Or do you want to have a completely global market-driven uh, system, which inevitably, as things go now, for example, would lead to a situation of strong focus on, on commodity uh, production. So this, this is why the role of uh, public governments and with, with instruments like uh, public-private partnerships or incentives for um, farmers uh, to work uh, together would, would actually uh, help. Of course, in every sector, you might need other approaches, but in all these cases, it is important to have maybe also a foresight system in place, which allows governments to foresee the possible scenarios, what will happen in 10, 20 years, if we leave things as they are now. It's enormously much more complicated to change things if things have dramatically go wrong than uh, if you can have an ability to change uh, during uh, the time. So it's about managing a, a transition process either to sustainable farming or to sustainable energy. All this requires uh, transition processes which needs a strong public governance. So the impact of technology is dependent, of course, on the technology itself, but also how people use the technology, especially if it's a consumer product. Does this mean that alongside innovation policies, in terms of how innovations should be developed, there should also be policies around education, educating the public, marketing restrictions and guidelines, those kind of things to ensure that the people who are receiving the innovation know what they are getting themselves into is that part of the scope of responsible innovation policies as well? Or is that more of a collaboration with other departments or areas? No, I, I would say that is part of it. Uh, but um, already in your wording, you say um, people receiving innovation. So if you have a quote you there, this is precisely the problem. So within education and within involvement of citizens in innovation it's about not just that you receive the innovation but that you are actively part of it uh, so this is of course practiced in in um, in technologies which are let's say the most flexible ones uh, especially in the ict uh, ict sector where it's more easier to involve uh, end users and uh, citizens in in designing uh, what they actually want to get out of uh, innovations. So yeah, that's in a sense, again, a sort of democratization, but also making it concrete that, uh, that you get uh, technologies people actually want. Uh, of course, companies also uh, are aware of that. Uh, that they also see the, um, the business advantage. If something is really um, carried by the public, then of course you will also have more success on the market. The interesting thing also, if you, engage with citizens in the innovation process itself, which is always a very unpredictable element. And users actually use technologies very often in a way which was also not foreseen by the companies itself. Microsoft, I think, introduced some type of game. When they introduced them uh, as video games, they thought this was it. But then 
there were doctors using it for optimizing their um, their heart surgery and things like that. So, and and then of course the company realizes that and started to adjust uh, the elements of this technology towards that goal as well. But it, you could also say if you would have involve users early on in the process, then you can identify these possible users or reuse of technology for other objectives and so on. And um, so user involvement is a way of uh, addressing it, but it can also uh, address particular implementation of on the ethics which we had before. I mean, for example, I mean, we 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 may agree on relative universal values concerning personal data protection, for example, but its interpretation or implementation in particular context uh, can cause well huge varieties in uh, in opinions among uh, among people, and uh, so also in that sense, the participation of immediate participation in the design of new software, for example, is, is quite interesting uh, to follow up and that certainly would contribute to an ROI perspective. It seems like out of the four responsible innovation pillars, the responsiveness element seems to be the hardest for companies to do. I'm just wondering, would you have any tips the responsiveness first has to be something which is also institutionalized and there again the public uh, governance is important that actors can become responsive so it's not that, uh, that that people don't want to be responsive but they should be enabled and should be part so so the public authority in other words should allocate uh, also tasks you know, to people, what type of responsiveness is actually required. This has to be done at different levels. So in terms of research, for example, where you can say, well, stakeholder uh, participation is important, but you can also have a particular commitment towards a goal. So that this can be uh, institutionalized. And then this responsiveness is then already incentivized and people will be able to do that within that context. The same is with anticipation. I mean, anticipation for a big part is something which uh, is actually also the responsibility of the state, less actually the companies themselves. But of course, you know, also the bigger uh, companies, for example, when it comes to the sustainability of their um, organization, they need to have a long-term view. In some cases, this can uh, go uh, pretty far. A big chemical giant in the Netherlands, for example, in Axel, they, they actually abandoned this program again. But they started to uh, subsidize education products, uh, projects in the slums of South Africa, um, mm-hmm. just by the argument that these people will be their customers later on uh, in 20 years. Uh, so it, it sounds like it's not, you would say, well, this is for a company very strange to do, but the CEO at that time found this is, a, this is an important initiative. Now, these, these things can also only be done if you have cooperation of the state. So in that case, also there was cooperation with the South African government. Uh, anticipation can go, especially by the bigger companies, say it should actually be part of the program if they want to have a long-term uh, sustainability goal. And if we now already know that by 2050, the uh, fossil energy is, is over, at least this is the objective in many countries already by now, some of all even want to go faster, then they have to think on where they are beyond 2050. <laughs> so so it, it is, an, uh, an, the anticipation is of course in, uh, is important and, and I think they can only uh, shape their future also in relation to not just their current customers, but much broader in the whole societal context. I'm going to refer to a particular chapter in your book. So in chapter eight, which is called, Is Innovation Always Good For You? I agree. Uh, Luc Foyter, um, is that right, Foyter? Uh, Luc Foyter, um, is so Luke said, responsible innovation should best start with companies and innovators. 
but these characters are often not aware of the long-term impact of the innovations. And he gave example, the financial innovation of credit swaps that triggered the 2008 financial crisis. So my question here is, is there anything we can learn from, for example, the financial crisis from a policy perspective in preventing a similar crisis in AI, biotech, even social media, which are innovations, of course, that are much closer and much more intimate to humans, which means that they're more risky. Well, um, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's uh, I'm not sure if I can, um, can answer this question uh, satisfactorily in terms of the parallel to uh, the financial uh, crisis to which uh, Luke Sutter referred to. In, in so far, there is a comparison. You can say that financial markets were pretty much unregulated. And prior to the economic crisis, there were already demands by some governments even to have a, a better regulation of these global financial markets. And this was never achieved because there was a strong resistance against that. And for even post-crisis, particular changes in the, in, you know, in the banking sector, for example, has happened globally, also in Europe very strongly with, with regulations. There has been ongoing discussion on the particular taxing on, on financial transactions and, and so on. So it has led to some uh, changes and, and this is not, not untypical when it comes to Europe or to actually the global situations. We only start to change things when uh, we hit a disaster, you know, so we had a financial disaster, so it came to a sudden response. And now with COVID, although we know already open science is a good thing to do before COVID, but uh, now it helps. So again, you know, you have this situation, um, but what we did not do yet, and this is of course in, uh, the parallel probably, is that on the global level, when it comes, for instance, for AI, as you as now mentioned, as, as probably the new technology, which now has receives a lot of focus, that precisely this technology might be driven completely by, let's say, the competition between global operators such as uh, Alibaba in China and, and Google and Microsoft on the other side in the US. So you will have an intense competition between big companies, a, few, a very few big companies, who invest enormously in these uh, in these technologies. I believe they, they invest to one billion a year in, in AI. This is much more than, um, than, than governments can give follow-up to. So the, the, the question is then, how will these technologies be shaped? What, what form will they take? Uh, how can RRI actually ever address this, this, uh, this thing? So yeah, and, and then, I, then I just have to repeat myself a little bit. I mean, the, the, the public governments again will become enormously important and, and the European Commission does also fund uh, AI and they want to even fund what they call then good AI. So AI was this centered uh, uh, to, to and let's say enhance human autonomy or has all kinds of nice ethical objectives. But uh, the question is if the technology itself are designed as a consequence of this uh, user competition, whether we, we can uh, achieve our goal here. So this, this is a normal challenge. And, and so I, I, the, the, the parallel with the financial crisis is, is only that of uh, what type of regulation you want to take in, in place and what, what type of governance you want to take in place. Certainly the financial crisis was, uh, was the consequences of a lack of governance. And you know, under the Trump regime, so to speak, the international governance even uh, went further backwards. International governance, global cooperation are things which are prerequisites for, for RRI in a global perspective. But uh, the last decade, we, we, have, uh, we have engaged in uh, dismantling uh, global uh, governance. Even institutions like the WHO, which are now important in the context of COVID, have suffered of, uh, of lack of global governance. 
instead of uh, getting the support uh, needed. Mm. So this is the this is the uh, biggest challenge, I think. And one can get pessimistic uh, there, um, but um, maybe at one point there will also be a, a new wave of politicians which which reflect uh, the urgency of these things. Do you think that realistically is a another disaster? <laughs> well, I mean, one maybe cannot imagine yet what will be the disaster of AI in the future. Uh, um, I, I, on the short term, I only see uh, uh, maybe the application of AI in, 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 in relatively uh, pointless areas, you know, maybe an AI which automatically uh, likes uh, Facebook pages in your name or something like that. So, you know, which, which is are the type of innovations we normally get. And on the other hand, of course, you have very problematic applications of AI in which uh, the, the intransparency of the algorithms used uh, lead to um, decision-making, which is catastrophic. So we, we have the example already from the US where companies have developed uh, algorithms to help to decide whether uh, prisoners can go on early uh, release or not. And But the algorithms are privatized and you don't know on what basis they, these decisions are made. So that is, again is of course an issue of public governance. One should one either should not uh, privatize these things or not, or if they are privatized and the algorithms should be transparent. These are also, of course, challenges on, on I think, on the immediately short term. Responsible innovation as a, as a paradigm requires a shift from, uh, let's say, on one hand, we have still the traditional key tech orientation, you know, be it biotech, AI or nano, in the hope that this will bring us the economic benefits or in which we engage also on the basis of competition between blocks, where there is an intense competition to try to uh, be the best in this area. But, you know, this contradicts with arise an innovate, new innovation paradigm where you want to achieve uh, social desirable goals and, and where the governance is actually where the assessment and, and, the, and, and of your uh, success is, is different. Huh? So in, in, in the competition model, you look, of course, to a competitive advantage as, as, a, as a sort of governance uh, success, where in RRI you look to uh, achieving social desirability as, as a success. And the latter uh, requires more than only technological innovation. Even governance is maybe the most important thing to ensure responsible innovation happens in the future. How do we ensure that the instruments we put in themselves are responsible and driving the right behaviors? Well, yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, of course also an important element. The, uh, anything you will you will do in terms of public governance in this area has to be a result of a democratic process. Of course, this is where we started also off with, and we we, we actually see that uh, science and technology has been an area in Western society which which still can be much more democratized than it currently is in terms of uh, its steering and governance. So how we would introduce RRI within the deliberative democracy is in itself a, a social political uh, team. This has been a subject uh, matter which uh, a lot of people actually have uh, also worked on and there have been in the, in the past all kinds of experiments of course with extending deliberative democracy to science and technology. We had in the 90s these so-called consensus conferences on uh, on, on all kinds of new uh, technologies, be it genetic modification or, or issues such as that. But uh, we have now reached a state where we have to um, implement this uh, much more institutionally. So within universities, within organizations. So, and I think there we also made some progress. So some universities, for example, have uh, profiled themselves as universities who want to contribute to notably sustainable development uh, actions, change the organization of their uh, university to address, to optimize uh, 
contributions in this direction. So I, I think it's it's indeed an issue of deliberative uh, democracy, which uh, with, with where we have to continuously discuss these things. I think you also mentioned in one of your questions, uh, people can, or maybe people don't change their values very quickly, but um, the application of, or the, or let's say the application of values in particular contexts can change. Uh, our notions about privacy have, have, of course, also changed over the last hundred years. When uh, X-ray was uh, discovered, when somebody would make an X-ray of my body, you would not show this picture to somebody where you ski the skeleton. There would be an intrusion of privacy in the past. Now, now nobody would 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 sense it. This is this is relevant. Nobody would care. But uh, it it wasn't it was seen as an intrusion of privacy. So what you what you see as private or not being private can change over time in, in relation to use of technologies. So this articulation and discussion has, has to go on. Well, we got about five more minutes. And I'm going to try to answer two questions. So let's see how we go. Okay. <laughs> For business leaders or entrepreneurs listening to this conversation, yep. What kind of initiative changes, policies can they, should they be watching out for that might happen within the next couple of years, two, three years? Well, there it really matters uh, whether it's, uh, you know, what is the size of these companies. Uh, I think this, this really matters quite a lot. So the, uh, I think the, the, the bigger uh, multinational operations, you know, some are, of course, quite well aware of this to have a, a long-term uh, view on, on their organization in relation to the uh, big societal uh, challenges we have from climate change, uh, energy, and so on. Uh, firstly, all big companies have to engage in this anticipation process. I, I give you one example, which was an interview with uh, a chemical plant in, in, in the Netherlands, which is also a multinational uh, DSM, which has a program on um, you know, research for what they call the free peace. So uh, it's uh, people, planet, uh, profits, but uh, that reflects a little bit such an anticipation. One, one can say whether they do it well or not. One can, one can argue about it, but I mean, it's an, it's an attempt. Uh, so one has to take this seriously and, uh, and, and some other companies do, do try to do uh, things along, along those lines in terms of longer term anticipation. So that's for the bigger companies, and there also the direct involvement. Uh, so this is, of course, maybe part of deliberate dem democracy to have interfaces with with citizens uh, as well. Not just whether uh, they would swallow particular products, but also in terms of what products they actually will demand for for the longer for the longer term. So I, I think that's for the bigger companies, and I think. We have to, if, if public governance really uh, gets on track in terms of the state implementing uh, innovation standards, for example, to which, which companies can comply to, then they would also be the first to, to, to adopt those rather than the, the, the smaller companies who have not the capacity to, to do all these uh, things. It's a well-known fact that... Uh, you know, even to small, medium-sized companies, investment, for example, in research or in longer-term products is, is, is difficult for them uh, to do within an, an economic rationale in which they have to operate. That's a challenge. I think for the, for the smaller companies, I think it's, uh, it will be important, which uh, we highlighted before, to look out uh, not only for um, other companies uh, with with which they have to compete, but also with with whom they can collaborate. Uh, so engaging in in networks uh, around innovation topics, which um, which actually address these societal challenges as well. And 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 there, interesting, we know uh, when it comes to innovations, uh, they come earlier from the smaller companies than from the bigger ones. Again, uh, COVID is a nice example. Uh, all the new vaccines, they they were they came out of the context of startups. And so we have uh, Pfizer, who is the German biotech, of course uh, publicly subsidized to do so. Uh, we have. Uh, 
AstraZeneca or is Oxford uh, University. Uh, so we have uh, Johnson with uh, the Dutch firm Johnson, uh, which was also a startup. So you have the, the small companies who are, who are most innovative, but can only bring these innovations to um, to uh, to the market with the help of the bigger ones, or engaging with other smaller ones uh, and make uh, joint initiatives. And maybe this latter is something which is uh, is uh, less uh, less practiced uh, nowadays. It's now still more a matter of okay, you know, uh, waiting till a small firm is successful and then hoping that you will be bought up on or something. You know, so. <laughs> And I think this, this 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 model on the long term is uh, is not uh, driving innovation. It may actually kill it. So that's 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 I think the major things I would think of at the moment. So to close off this interview, half question, uh, and it's about your reflection. So looking. Thinking about your career, what's something you want to see happen during your career? If you like one big thing, what would it be? Ah, okay. Well, I mean, yeah, I'm now currently so uh, preoccupied with this change of the rewards and incentive system of science that I, I hope to 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 see this happening uh, very very quickly and still, you know, before I go in retirement. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the bigger things on uh, which we also talked about today, the, they are for the longer longer term. So uh, probably I will not be alive anymore if it uh, if, if they are going to happen or not. But uh, but uh, of course I I you know one has it's a long process. So uh, this is where I'm engaged in. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. I hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you for the interview. It uh, was a pleasure to have uh, been able to talk to you. It's really my honor. So thank you very much. And thank you. Again.